Welcome to Sundial. I'm Carlos Frias. It took going to college for Tamika Hobbs to learn the truth about black history, her history. She went to grade school in Suwannee County near the Florida Georgia line, but it wasn't until she took her first black history class at Florida A&M that she realized all she hadn't been taught in school. She wants to make sure other Florida students don't have to wait that long. Tamika partnered with the Black History Project in Orlando to start a Black History Saturday School in several Broward County libraries. Once a month, students study the true depth of black history, and it's all free for middle and high school students. It's meant to supplement the state's new controversial standards for teaching black history, including the myth that black people benefited in some way from forced labor. And the program doesn't start with slavery in America. Students learn about black life in pre-colonial Africa, and then it traces black history through the civil rights struggle to today's struggle. Tamika manages one of the Broward County libraries that offers the program, the African American Research Library and Cultural Center in Sistrunk. It's a historically black neighborhood in Fort Lauderdale. Tamika has a PhD in history with a concentration in black history. Now she's recruiting teachers to help lead the Saturday classes at three other Broward County libraries. To talk to us about her work and her journey into teaching black history, is Tamika Hobbs. Tamika, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. It's so great to have you here. And I see, like, as I mentioned, at FAMU right up at the top, and you are repping FAM big time today. Absolutely. It's homecoming week. I can't wait to get back on the hill. Uh, but yes, always representing my alma mater. You got your FAM t-shirt on, and then you got this hot, uh, this pink, um, orange jacket over the top. You're, you're straight 100, uh, 100 FAM representation today. Thank you. Yes, got to do it. <laughs> So obviously we're going to have some fun today also, but obviously we're here to talk about a serious topic, which is, you know, this this bringing to, to the topic, to the forefront, the teaching of black history, particularly the parts of black history that the new standards in Florida um, have eroded. Um, as, so talk to me about that. Talk to me about what you saw in the new standards and when they came out that made you start thinking, okay, there is something that needs to be done about this and I need to be part of doing it. Sure. I, I would actually back up my interest and concern back to the passage of the Stop Woke Act. Um, mm. In addition to the work that I do, I've, I've been doing for the last uh, five or six years, I've been working with the South Florida People of Color, um, which is an anti-racist uh, educational operation. And uh, we have been leading community race dialogues based around uh, history, primarily uh, black aspects of black history, which many people don't have a full understanding of and came to our programs to learn about. And well, what, talk, talk, talk to me about that. You said you, you've been having these conversations started by that. So tell me about what how those conversations took place. Were they like uh, like meeting centers or a small group of people or focus? Like how did you guys start to approach something like that? Um, so it, we got started way back. I think this was in 2015. I was, um, the organization was new. Mm. Its founder, uh, Ronnie Bennett, who's its executive director, uh, wanted to host a conversation, a book talk around Ta-Nehisi's Coates uh, Between the World and Me. Mm -hmm. And so that was invited to come in. That was my first time meeting Ronnie. And uh, we were convening at Brockway Memorial Library in Miami Shores. Mm. So this is a black topic. I'm a black you know, scholar. This is an organization for people of color. I'm expecting to walk into this room for an audience of of. of people of color. And that's not what we saw at all. The room was standing room only full of middle-aged white Jewish folks, white and Jewish folks, uh, people of, of, of non-black, non-people non -people of color. 
And we went through the session uh, and I really had to work hard because even though the room was packed, no one was comfortable speaking. Hmm. And as we debriefed from that event, we were just like, well, what really was happening? What is happening? Oh, that's such an interesting dynamic there that you start breaking down. Like what, who are the folks that came out? Why were they here? And like, how do we dissect what we just sat through here. Yeah, and they it's clearly they were curious and they, they wanted to learn, but didn't feel comfortable, didn't feel like they had the tools. And it was out of that experience that we immediately began to put together what became the Unity 360 Race Dialogue Series that we hosted uh, through 2016. And we used our tools. We created what we like to call containers with ground rules that establish how we would operate while we were together. Um, We educated people around the history and language of race. Mm -hmm. Uh, We picked different topics each time and um, just invited people to get to know one another and to to do some storytelling about their own biography, their own racialized experience, helping white people to realize that white is a race and there is a racialized experience that goes along with that. It's and um, it's interesting to me. Really powerful work. Yeah, it's interesting to me. You said that that it was quiet, and I think that that's probably good, right? Like when when your mouth is closed, your ears your ears are more wide open, right? But so. it was a book discussion, so it oh, was very you know uh, it was very unusual um, to to have it put out that way. But I, I'm proud to say that over the years, the work has evolved. Our mm-hmm. audiences have gotten bigger. Uh, we have founded what is our signature program, the Awkward Dinner, which is uh, another uh, format that we've done. We've done movie uh, screenings. Tell me about the Awkward Dinner, though. That sounds <laughs> Because I'm like a former food writer, dinner in general is always interesting to me. Like, what is the awkward dinner? Yeah, we took the concept to uh, Philanthropy Miami, mm-hmm. and uh, they had a Shark Tank competition where they were looking at these uh, social justice initiatives, and we won. Um, we put forward this idea of curating a series of dinners where we would bring people together uh, from different social economic backgrounds, different racial backgrounds, and cur- have a curated conversation doing one of the most intimate things that people can do together, which is to dine together. And uh, we've run that series since 2017 Mm. um, in a myriad of locations, a myriad of communities. And uh, it is for us uh, a really entry level way of introducing people to the concept of a, of a race dialogue and, and getting comfortable uh, talking about race. Uh, and, and so it's been really beautiful to see that work evolve over the year. I want to shout out Ronnie. Ronnie recently was recognized by the um, Miami Shores Chamber of Commerce as their citizen of the year for the work that she's been leading wow. in that community through the South Florida people of color. So it's been an amazing journey. So you guys have been, have been creating this foundation for to be able to have these discussions, kind of what are where's our shared vocabulary that we're talking about here? And now it moves into a different realm, right? Like that, you guys build on that from this. Yeah. Well, I, uh, I got there because, um, you know, in doing that work, we immediately started to feel the chilling impact of, of the Stop Woke Act on that work. There are our traditional clientele were less interested and less available. Uh, they weren't reaching out like they had been before. There was so much concern about being in violation of of the law uh, oh, when wow. it came to, um, you know, making people uncomfortable, which is just such a slippery and dangerous type of, of metric. Tell, uh, tell so me, before we get too far down the road, so just remind us a little bit about what the Stop Woke Act 
Yeah. Particularly, would it? Would it? How would it affect? This was uh, your twenty. Work? Yeah, twenty twenty two, I believe, is when it came about. But mm-hmm. it um, it basically says that. Um, and uh, let me back it up. Um, stop woke. Woke stands for um, in the language of Florida's government, wrongs against our kids and employees. Oh boy, they came in. Act- they 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 turned it into an enactment. They turned it on its head. Right, which is a pretty uh, you know interesting phenomenon when you take a, a word like woke that came out of black vernacular out of the black power struggle. It meant to be aware of the critical issues that are taking place around you, especially dealing with race and racial injustice. Be awake to it, right? Right, and then to turn it into this thing, which has now become uh, very much a part of the political language. Uh, it's a it's a political political dog whistle, really. Um, but it stands in for their in the, for the purposes of the law for wrongs against kids and employees, and these alleged wrongs or are when you introduce conversations about race and gender that are intended or uh, allow people to feel hurt uh, uh, or feel blame uh, for things that have happened in the past, uh, and it really is a, an attempt to silence. The other part of what's being demonized, which is critical race theory. I want to talk about, like, move into the program that then you started now, because I think this is really interesting. Yes. Like, I think of, like, I think of Hebrew school when I think of, like, Saturday school. Mm-hmm. Like, it's a way of, like, of connecting with your language. Uh, my, my daughter used to take, um, uh, like, uh, Mandarin school on Saturdays, and it's a way to learn about culture specifically as she's trying to learn the language. And I think if, whether you, like, tell me about then what you hope to do with a Black History Saturday School. Sure. Um, so whether we're talking about uh, generally in the workplace or specifically in, in K-12 or even higher education, mm-hmm. the limitations and, and <laughs> barriers that are now being put up to uh, the, the type of conversations that we really need to be having to mm-hmm. move the needle forward when it comes to equity and, and inclusion uh, a Saturday school, um, and it really was inspired by the model of a Hebrew school, was our answer to that. Mm-hmm. Um, when I talk to uh, associates and professionals who are in public education, whether they're media specialists, whether they're teaching, there has been a, a real chilling effect uh, with the laws that have come down. S- teachers are unsure what books they can have on the shelves. This new curriculum is is also concerning. Uh, you layer on top of that, stop woke. Uh, the Tanahasi Coates book you mentioned has been banned and in, in, uh, banned or excluded. I like to say excluded to not say that it was a uh, banned. Challenged, but, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so there's there's just a lot of uh, pitfalls that there and nervousness in K-12. But I have the privilege of working in Broward County Library and our director, Allison Grubbs, has really been at the forefront of taking a stand for the freedom to read, protecting intellectual freedom. Um, that has really come out of our board of commissioners who have signed in a resolution um, for academic freedom and, and for the freedom to read. And so her program around uh, book sanctuaries in all of the branches or 37 branches throughout the county, you can go in and see a display of books that have been challenged throughout the state. Um, same thing happens online. When you go to our website, you can easily find those titles. You can have a very easy way to find out how you can check them out electronically or virtual uh, or, or in person. Mm-hmm. But following her lead um, and given my background, um, I, the, the answer to this issue specifically with black history 
was that we have spaces. We have seminar rooms. I was aware of Kristen Fuwali and the Black History Project. I've been talking to her for many months now, mm-hmm. trying to get her operation in our building. And it just right after the news came out about the K-12 curriculum changes in Florida, on the heels of the banning of the African-American Studies AP class being banned, uh, we were ready to go. Um, so we'd already worked out the details. We started to recruit teachers. Um, that's part of Kristen's model is to use teachers who are actively teaching in, in county school systems. That's an interesting uh, thing, too. You take people who are, who are career educators and, mm-hmm. then, and then work with them to create this. I, I guess it's one day a month for 10 months. So it's like a 10-week mm-hmm. curriculum. Nine months, yes. Nine, Nine months altogether for us. Mm-hmm. Uh, to create this curriculum. And hit us with some of the things... Um, I, I want to hear about some of the some of the things that are part of the curriculum. Well, the the really important piece, uh, and this is uh, when you look at the distance between the Florida State statute, which is one thousand three point four two two H, which specifically deals with the teaching of African American history. Mm-hmm. You are supposed to be introduced to the history of African people before slavery, but if you look at the new standards that were roll it rolled out. There is very little, if any, information there about pre-colonial Africa. So for our classes in the Saturday school, that's where we start with the students, is giving them at least a glimpse and some understanding of what was happening on that continent, that it was rich and and diverse. Uh, One of the things we often have to connect is, you know, uh, or demystify not just for students, but for many people, is that Africa is a continent with many different countries and not just one you know, country that we kind of talk about with a very broad brush. Uh, we talk about ancient civilizations, whether it's the ancient Egyptians mm-hmm. or uh, the ancient kingdoms of Ghana, Song- Songhai, and Mali, and the riches that came out of them, um, that these were not simply agrarian communities, that they had knowledge of mining and smelting, uh, particularly when it comes to gold. Much of the gold that was circulating during the Roman Empire had come from West Africa. Uh, when you think about great cities like Timbuktu, which had early universities uh, where people could learn astronomy and medicine uh, and literature and languages, these are not things that we typically associate with Western Africa prior to European encroachment. And these are all parts of history that in in the current curriculum might be left out, but for what you guys are teaching as a supplement on the weekends. Our guest today is Dr. Tamika Hobbs. She manages the African American Research Library and Cultural Center in Sistrunk. They partnered with the Black History Project in Orlando to start a Black History Saturday School in Broward County. Now we were just talking um, about some of those some of those pieces that you're trying to fill in, right? Sure. Those pieces that that uh, of basically adding context as we're talking about adding context to the black experience leading up to today. For sure, talk to me about some of that. Yeah, I was. We were talking about uh, pre-colonial Africa, and, and just to make the point about the very rich economic development. Mm-hmm social development, governmental development, military development uh, that existed there, not enough people know those facts. And when you don't know those facts, when you then have a curriculum that comes out that says that black people learned valuable skills from slavery that they didn't know before, uh, that becomes highly problematic. And which I is th- which is a, you're basically drawing from, that's part of the curriculum That is now. an actual part of the, the Florida 
curriculum, which has had, you know, naturally a a very upsetting effect. Um, These are things and, and contextualizations that tend to, in my opinion, have the desired goal of softening um, what we believe the impact of the transatlantic slave trade and channel slavery was on black people. And that is unacceptable that we uh, sugarcoat it, that we whitewash it. Um, We have to to do better. Our children deserve better than that. Um, and, And particularly, and this is the part that's important, while the law deals with wrong against kids, <laughs> which kids are we talking about? Because part of my own personal experience that you alluded to in the introduction is that an absence of the truth of the history of my people left huge gaps in my understanding of the society in which I was raised in terms of my relationship with American history and its development. It's only when you begin to fill those gaps that I could feel included, Mm. that I understood the things, so many things around me as a young person and and growing up where I grew up, the legacy of of segregation was still very much on the landscape and a part of our Mm -hmm. our reality. Um, As you, as you want to talk about home. um. Yes, let's talk about home. (laughs) So like you, you, Swanee County, what, what town were you in? Um, Live Oak, which was the county oh, seat, yeah. is the county seat. Just um, north of Gainesville, sure. Yes, yes. That's where I was raised. My parents are still there. My family is still there. Um, that's where I grew up. But I, I did not, uh, as a matter of fact, get very much information about black history just in my traditional K-12 hmm. uh, education. Um I did not know really until I got to college, I think is when I really filled in the chronology that my parents were among the first to integrate the high school in our in our county. This is in the 1970s. So that effectively makes myself and my brother the first generation in our family never to have attended segregated schools. That's wild. That's so worth uh, kind of stepping on because I'm, I'm, you know, born in '75, so same, same thing. You know, oh, like we're born the same year. Yeah, yeah so. there you mm-hmm, go. Mm-hmm. So it, it's kind of like that, like just born outside that window, right? You know, and and I'm curious, like, what was it? You must have gotten a lot of the lessons in history more at home than you were getting in school, it sounded like. Well, that's the other part of the equation for my parents and my grandparents, and I think many other people of those generations, we did not have very many explicit conversations about race. Mm. I believe that they sincerely thought that they were doing us a favor by allowing us to go into this new world and understand the world that we came up in in the 1970s after the civil rights movement, after the Civil Rights Act, after the Voting Rights Act, after so many uh, areas of the society had finally opened truly to black people. I think that my parents and grandparents wanted us to go off into this new world unfettered Mm. um, by the burdens of the racial past. And so it was not really then. It it would come up now and then. I would hear them complaining essentially about racism on the job. I remember my grandfather uh, griping. uh, And I shouldn't say gripe 
that I don't want to minimize it. But I remember him being very upset about being passed over for a promotion yeah. um, and watching younger white men um, that he would have to be that he would have to train. That he would be asked to train. What did your grandfather do? Um, he worked at a, a mining company, Occidental, um, that was over in Hamilton County uh, for years. What is that? Rock quarries? What's where, where did mine? It was rock and phosphate. Mm-hmm. Um, my father worked there for for some years as well. Many many people in my extended family either worked at the mining company or worked at the chicken processing plant at, at Goldkiss. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, my grandmother had been a maid at one point in her life. She was a seamstress. Um, these are hardworking, salt-of-the-earth uh, folk. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and even, you know, when I think about my grandfather, he had to end his formal education in the fourth grade. Wow. Um, because at that point in time, number one, there weren't schools that were available to him to continue. Right. But second of all, it was expected of him um, to go out to work and support his father, uh, who was a sharecropper. Right. A lot of folks fields. don't know that in a lot of a lot of cities, I think Miami included, uh, there was no schooling for for black kids outside of like past the sixth or the eighth grade. And you'd have to go to a different part of the state mm-hmm. if you wanted to uh, do a higher education, high school, even middle school. And and high schools were yeah far and few between. You had to have special arrangements. You have to have lodging arrangements in order to if you were able to to continue your education. And that's very stands out in my mind because my grandparents uh, especially were incredibly capable, incredibly hardworking, creative, and bright. If they'd had the same opportunity as I'd had, uh, the outcome for their lives would have been quite different. But they were living in the Jim Crow segregated South, um, living under the shadow of lynching violence, uh, police brutality, um, economic deprivation, uh, unequal pay. and these are people, you know, some people did leave with the Great Migration, but I'm descendant of people who had to survive and do what they needed to do um, to live in this segregated South until, you know, things got better, um, which it did, fortunately, by the time I'd come along. So uh, so I'm curious with that kind of background, when you get to when you get to college and then you start getting a fuller uh, explanation or delving into black history. Tell me about some of the things that blew your mind that kind of just really opened the world for you. I um I think for me there were a couple of things. Uh there was the chronology. Finally I was able to be presented with a chronology around slavery, around Jim Crow and segregation that helped me to put the the lives of the people that I loved into context. My mother and oh, father, my grandparents. Like I did not connect them with Jim, the Jim Crow experience. Like, wait, my my parents grew up in segregated schools. Like, you put them in the, you were able to physically put people, not physically, people that that mm-hmm. are in your background, put them in the timeline. They're in the story. Yeah. And and of course, they talked about their schools and they talked about their teachers, but it was never in a racialized context. Uh, so would you come so, home from school and be like, <laughs> did y'all know? And <laughs> yeah, I, was, I, I mean. And they're it, like, yeah, we lived it. Most vividly, um, it was, it must have been around my sophomore year. I was taking classes with Dr. Theodore Hemingway, who's since passed away. Mm-hmm. And we were dealing with uh, the aftermath of Reconstruction mm-hmm. and the rise of lynching violence. And, you know, he knew everybody in the class. He knew I was from Live Oak. And, and he turned to me and he said, I bet you don't know that they lynched a boy in Live Oak. And I was like, what? Like, surely if something, because I was completely horrified by lynching violence. Again, nothing I had ever been put on my radar before. But to think that something like that had taken place in my hometown just really uh, blew me away. So my next trip home, I asked my grandfather, um, Freeman Grimmage, about it. And I just remember his reaction 
And I could just see him being taken back in his mind to a, just a very difficult and dark place uh, yeah. because he said, to, you know, to me pretty just in a soft voice, he was like, yeah, baby, I, I remember when that happened. I remember that if I was walking to town and I encountered a white woman, I would turn around and go home because he didn't want to be accused of anything, knowing that in the example of Willie James Howard, any accusation made against him in that context could have potentially cost him his life. And so... Uh, not only him, and when I began to delve into the practice of oral history and then later got more serious about this topic as my master's and PhD dissertation, I talked to all of these people who I had been around all of my life who had all of these stories. Um, they remembered Willie James Howard. He was their classmate. It was Miss um, Fillmore, who was across the street from my church. I was very good friends with her granddaughter. But she was a classmate of his. It was Miss Depass, my middle school science teacher. She was another one of his classmates. Miss um, Corrine Dunbar, who I attended church with all of my life. She was the first cousin of Willie James Howard and had seen her own husband shot and killed in broad daylight by a, a deputy sheriff by the name of Wiley Bird in, in Live Oak. So there was all of these all of these stories, all these lived experiences all around me. And it wasn't until I, until I started asking the right questions that I began to get answers and, and, and really began to appreciate some of the really terrible times and experiences that that folks had had to um, to live through. So going back to your original question in terms of what I learned, those things were really important for me. The other part that was very exciting for me is to learn about these these the history of freedom fighters and Mm -hmm. uh, folks like uh, Frederick Douglass. And I remember being enamored, and I still am enamored, with Ida B. Wells Barnett. um, The uh, act she was an investigative journalist who wrote and researched on lynching violence in in her era and was able through her findings to refute the commonly given justification for the lynching of black men, which is that they were attempting to rape white women. And what she found is that in less of a quarter of the cases had that actually been correct, either alleged or or attempted, that there was really something much more nefarious uh, at play so this all this all begins to you start to create you start to create a more a more complex view a more context based view in your mind of the African the African American experience here and then beyond and then you start like there's there's other parts of it too like you you also are you spend a lot of time looking into like black excellence because I know that you're like you're a big music you're a music buff you're <laughs> like that part of it is interesting to you even like all those bits and pieces right like it's it's the it's the beauty, it's the pain, but also the beauty of like the con. Yeah, it, uh, I mean, I, I, when I talked to you about these things, understand that it was transformative for me. I, mm. I'd gone to FAMU to study business. I changed my major. I started studying history. Mm. I went to work in um, what is now the Meek Eton Black Archives and Research Center on the campus, a, a museum and archives, mm. um, which is you know full circle for me now being at Arlick. But it was also very profound to me and very upsetting to me to know um, as a 19-year-old that someone somewhere in some office had made a decision that I did not need to know this information, that it was okay if these items were left off of the curriculum. You were mad. You were mad that this, why am I just hearing about this now? Right, right. And so imagine my upset all these years later. I mean, nearly 30 years later, we're talking about when we are back at a point 
in this state where education is being tampered with when it comes to the truth about the black experience. And, and that's at, you know, on top of a lot of really positive things that have been happening in over the last 30 years. I was just going to ask you why. why? In your opinion, why? Why are we seeing this? Why are we here? Why are we, why are we getting back to 1975 uh, teaching of, of black history in school? Well, I think or it's lack a, of rather. I think it's a you know it's a easy to set up a straw man, um, mm-hmm. and I think that Black history um, has become a bit of a, a straw a straw a straw straw man mm-hmm. being used as a political dog whistle. That is very effective. Uh, it is having the desired effect in in some arenas. Um, I think it's a an easy target. I think that um, after the summer of 2020. When we saw historic protest in this country and every state in this nation that were highly diverse, um, the majority of the people that participated in those uh, protests that summer were not people of African descent. What did that say to you? Um, I was very encouraged by it um, because it meant for me that people were coming to a different understanding about the nature of the crisis of police brutality and that they understood the need for allyship and the reality of our history uh, as people on these shores is that there's been no major movement forward uh, for our advancement within the society without allyship we can talk about uh, abolition which sowed the seeds for the end of slavery we can talk about um, the civil rights protest uh, that ultimately um, broke down some of the, the, the last major barriers in this society, um, not last, but really critical uh, barriers. All of those were brought along mm. by allyship. We are numerically a minority, a significant minority within this country. So it can only be when other people understand our pain, understand our issues and stand with us and vote for these matters, that things can move forward. And I think that there are people who are very fearful about what that means. There have been folks for decades now who have railed against ethnic uh, ethnic studies in the university environment. Uh, and I think also when you look at the expected demographic changes in this country, there, there are people who are very fearful about what that's going to mean for their position mm-hmm. and, and for their power. And with the election of Barack Obama in 2008 and again in 2012, that was a, you know, it became very vivid what the what the future could look like. And, and there are people who don't want to see that. And so by dismantling and confusing what people are able to learn about black history, I, I think it supports in many ways the, the status quo. Uh, and it's very dangerous. I, I my concern first and foremost, is for the truth. Mm. Um, But I have to think about kids that look like my own kids and families that look like my own family. Uh, The need for this information and these critical perspectives uh, can't be left to chance. And our public libraries, libraries like the Broward County system, are places where we can facilitate that. And so I'm proud to be able to bring that forward. I'm curious how you're how your kids growing up and the the, con- the context of those conversations about black history has been different for them versus how it was for you. Oh, yeah. Well, so if my parents were silent, um, having the black history professor as a mom is the opposite of that. <laughs> my kids got dragged to 
every museum, every lecture that I've given over the years. We had the books at the house, our dinnertime conversations, our analysis of the news and culture. Mm. Um, I always was very explicit with my children about the um, the nature of race. And, and I have two sons. Um, one is 27. One is about to turn 18. Uh, I will say that my soon-to-be 18-year-old has probably uh, drank the deepest of <laughs> of that. He he is a bit of a history buff. Mm. He takes a lot of pride in what he knows about his own experience and um, is really drawn to these stories. I remember taking him to the uh, Harry T. and Harriet V. Moore site up in Brevard County, and they have reconstructed the home that was bombed in uh, 1951 resulting these in are the, folks who are giving safe harbor to to black families uh, tell me well you some background on interestingly that enough uh harry, we, we had marvin dunn on the show and he talked about this some but it's been a while since we had yeah him. well harry moore is actually a native of of swanee county um up mm. my way okay. um he attended florida memorial college which is while it's down here now in miami gardens um spent many of its early years was founded up in swanee county he was the valedictorian of that class in 1925 but after he graduates he goes on to a career in education uh and social and civil activism. He was a part of lawsuits to equalize teacher pay um, here in the state of Florida. He uh, fought for access to the ballot after the Smith versus Allwright decision in 1944, which dismantled the all-white primary. Between that time and the time of his assassination in 1951, he was responsible for registering something like 110,000 black people in this state to vote. He was the first president of the Florida State Conference of the NAACP. He was an anti-lynching activist. I, I quote him and, and reference his writings and his work in my own book on lynching in Florida. But it was because of all of that work that he was on the radar of the KKK and, and targeted for, for murder. And I imagine part, like exactly what we're talking about, is part of these Saturday school sessions that you're that you're doing at the Broward County Library. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. We, I mean, we're going to get into it. Um, I, I'm so proud of the teachers that we have at our site. Um, this session that they've had, the first session has already taken place. Registration is still going on. I do want to let people know that, that that is available. But they began by having a conversation about the history of black history and why hmm. it's been challenged and why it's so fraught. Um, and, and before they could get in and dive in. And, and the response has been for the students and the parents, many of the parents who stayed with them, has been absolute shock, surprise, and just a thirst and hunger for more. Do you find that, that the parents might bring their kids and, and they end up maybe staying and sitting in the back of the class and get a little auditing the class, so to speak? Yes, they, they are staying and, and they too are being surprised by the things that they did not know. Mm. And I, I am encouraging, I encourage that. I think it's a really wonderful thing. It, I think it makes a really huge impression on a young person to be in a multi-generational classroom. Mm. Um, I think it elevates their learning and their level of attention. But yes, that they're not only by the fact that the parents stayed, we've also heard as we've been recruiting uh, for the classes for middle and high school students, there are many adults who wish that they could have this content as well because you know they too have been victims of less than robust uh, educational systems. Our guest today is Dr. Tamika Hobbs. She manages the African American Research Library and Cultural Center in Cistrunk in Fort Lauderdale. They partnered with a Black History Project in Orlando to start a Black History Saturday School in Broward County Libraries. 
I'm curious what some of your early feedback has been, Tamika, so far. Uh, you mentioned parents kind of sitting in the back of the class, becoming part of these conversations, kind of, like you said, a multi-generational grandparents talking to kids, uh, making some of those experiences uh, feel much more real, right? Yes, there is an absolute thirst for more. Mm. Um, there is a, people are very clear that there's so much distance between what they know uh, and for the students, what they are being taught mm -hmm. and what they are seeing and hearing in these classes. Um, and so that is incredibly profound. And the other thing that is really a really important part of this model, something that Kristen trains the teachers on and we reinforce, and that is in order to not make this like school, there is an open invitation for these students to bring forward their questions, and they are doing that. They are asking about the distance between what they're being taught and what they're experiencing. So for example, mm -hmm. I think they were beginning to touch on the American Revolution and the fact that the American colonists are rhetorically making arguments for their own freedom by referring to themselves as being enslaved by Britain. And the question from the young people is, wait a minute, <laughs> these are some of the same people who are actively exploiting and using enslaved labor, have no intention of freeing the people that they're holding in bondage. Why are they not able to make that leap in that transition? And so, um, you know, freedom and liberty, but not like that. Right. Not for you. Not everybody is entitled to it um, from their vantage point. Now, you know, there's a whole you, you can get into there's a whole lesson behind that and, and who they were constructing this new republic for right. um, and who they viewed as being uh, entitled to or ready for citizenship. And it clearly did not include black people. But um, that's where you get into conversations about how race became to be constructed socially and legally. And, and those are things that are very important if you are not going to let people fall back into an assumption. And that is the assumption of the innate inferiority of, of black people. Um, that if, right, we, like if you don't challenge that assumption right there, correct, right in that spot, then then you can't you're you're already starting on 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 bad footing on bad foundation right uh, that races race is constructed um it is constructed socially it is constructed legally that whiteness is a social construct um that needs to be understood and unpacked um and even like i said going back to the to the statute this if you leave students with the lesson that their ancestors benefited from slavery because they learned some new skill without actually demonstrating for them that these people had skills and had societies and had economies that they had been running for centuries before they were caught up in, in the slave trade. The other thing that's really dangerous in the curriculum is the way uh, that I have noticed that there seems to be a push to identify slavery as something that was universal, that there were, and, and factually, yes, there was, slavery existed in, in every human society, but there is not enough differentiation in what happened specifically to blacks who ended up in North America as slavery. We have to explain the reality of chattel slavery. In right. other societies prior to this, you could spend your part of your life as an enslaved person, but go on to be a leader, a respected person. Um, you would be integrated into the society that you were a part of. That status did not pass on to your children. 
those things are not true for chattel slavery. Chattel slavery in what would become America stripped you of your human rights. You had no civil rights. That status passed on to your children and their children into perpetuity with no opportunity for freedom unless you were able to come up with the resources to purchase them or you had a benevolent owner who freed you. Um, When we talk about also uh, the term natural increase being used to describe how the black population in the United States continued to grow, that is also another very important pain of point Uh, point of pain, I should say, Mm. when you consider that this natural increase came through the breeding of enslaved women. Yeah, which was not in in any natural way uh, at all. Like, like, there's nothing natural about that. So, And this um, is all the kind of context that you're, that you, with the Saturday classes, that you're trying to bring to the conversation. Age appropriate, but yes, it's, it's, um, it's what's left out. And, and the other part of this is, uh, despite best intentions, we also have to look at the training of teachers to be able to effectively deliver the content that's in front of them. And there are some challenges there as well. And so we end up in this this chicken and egg cycle um, around, you know, who's responsible for making sure that our educators have uh, the training that is necessary to be able to carry this out. I have had the privilege in the past of serving on the African-American History Task Force, which was established, I believe, in 1997 by Mm -hmm. the uh, Commissioner of Education to oversee the implementation of the 1994 mandate law mandating the teaching of, of black history and and they run summer institutes for teachers to help them understand to help them deepen uh, to help them improve their ability to deliver this curriculum uh, I have been a keynote speaker for mm-hmm. this group before I was slated to present to the group this year but it changed I was asked to submit my slides ahead of time for review oh, oh, um, for that, had, that had never happened. Uh, and then ultimately the uh, session, the training institute was postponed. And when they began to re-engage, I was informed that I was disinvited from wow. um, presenting. I, I was not the only person that I was aware of to whom that happened. My presentation would have been around contextualizing Juneteenth uh, mm. for, for students, something that's fairly harmless. Um, but, you know, all of that came, that news came out around the same time that these new uh, standards were released. And so you just really have to have to question if teachers are equipped. The other issue that has been brought up, and I, I want to shout out uh, Representative Christopher Benjamin for trying to address this. Part of the problem with the mandate, as well attentioned as it was in 1994, is that when you compare it to the mandate for teaching Holocaust history, Holocaust history has is mandated to be taught, but it is also mandated that it is measured and reported. Mm. We don't have the same teeth in the law when it comes to the black history teaching standard. Black and history. I know mm. that Representative Benjamin attempted to introduce a law that would address that. I think it's still something that needs to be addressed because what happens now in many school districts throughout this at this state Mm -hmm. is that they will list African-American history as an option, but then not actually teach it because there's quote unquote lack of interest. And so um, to make it, to make it an option is, is mm -hmm. a choice as they say. Correct. That is a choice to, to basically make this huge, 
this this part of it that's kind of central to the background of America. Mm-hmm. Just uh, let's make that optional. Yeah, and um, for for many people, because of you know what we know about the nature of of the black experience here, it has not been to use the words of Langston Hughes, a crystal stair. It's some really tough history, and it, it sometimes is antithetical to the way that we like to think about the progress of uh, our country. Um, and who we are as a, as a nation of laws, I, I continually am, am um, surprised or <laughs> by audiences when I talk about my book on lynching in Florida that they just are absolutely flabbergasted, had no idea of the scope and scale and depth and, and horror of this practice. And it really doesn't square. We we pride ourselves on being a nation of laws, but for nearly 90 years, we allowed open murder to take place uh, against people who we deem to be deserving of that type of, of treatment. So, so I'm curious, you're, this is something that you're broaching now. It's now available at four Broward County libraries, right? The, the Saturday yes. School so Program? so let me run them down. So we're doing ours at Arlick. We have um, the North La- Lauderdale branch. We have South Regional, which is Broward College. And we also have Dania Beach. Um, We are looking to activate Hollywood and Pompano. And so that will be, aside from Arlick, five other branches that will be offering these classes. So I'm really excited about that. It was because we had such a tremendous response from the teachers in Broward County who wanted to be a part of this. And they are fantastic and and, and, and just enthusiastic about it. And I, I want to just say, again, the leadership of Allison Grubbs and the library leadership who greenlit this um, to go just beyond our, our location, but to uh, activate as many other branches as we could. And for me, I as much demand as there is for every family that wants to have this curriculum, I'm determined to find a location and the resources um, to make it happen. And I'm so grateful not only for the teachers, for the libraries, but for our donors. Um, we received some funds from the Executive Leadership Council last year. Mm-hmm. Um, they had come to the state. They meet all around the nation. But coming to Florida, reading the headlines, they wanted to make a effort, make a, make a demonstration of their support of black history and gave us a donation. So I'm using some of those funds to underwrite these classes. We also had a very generous donation from the T.J. Reddick Bar Association uh, up in Broward County. Is there is there an, an effort to try to expand this to other counties, uh, uh, Palm Beach County, Miami-Dade County? Well, I'm working within the purview of, of what I have. But yes, mm-hmm. Kristen has been very busy. She has um, courses set up and running in Orlando, in Jacksonville, in Tallahassee, and in Miami. And so um, she is available. You can reach out to her at theblackhistoryproject.org to find out more about how you can get involved. Uh, she's working with us through libraries. That was a very natural um, network work, but she's worked with individual groups. If you have space and you have the resources to help her hire the teachers, there's possibility. What 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 is your hope? Like, what gives you hope that, like, what you're doing is going to move the needle? Um, the reactions and the questions that we got in our very first session have already planted seeds in those students. So um, when I think about where they will be at the end of this series. Um, By the time we get to June, the way that they are going to be transformed, I think that there is a sense of pride, a sense of determination, a sense of focus uh, that comes when you understand what it took for you to exist as a person of African descent in this moment. There's been so much suffering and sacrifice that uh, have taken place, um, things that I couldn't even begin to imagine and I could, don't even know because of the inability of them to keep my ancestors to be able to keep records and, and convey this information. And in the darkest moments of my life, that has been 
the the element on my shoulder that has continued to push me forward to have me get up when I get knocked down is that it's it's bigger than me. And when you have when you have kids that are getting this kind of education that you missed out on when you were maybe a kid their age, does it? How does that make you feel? Um, it's it's full circle. It's yeah. very purposeful. Um, and I I'm I'm just glad that the circumstances of my education and my occupation have allowed me the opportunity to be able to identify the need and to do something about this particular problem. I can't solve all problems, but I'm well suited to um, to to be a part of the solution in this situation, but it's a truly a label of, of love and, and really on purpose for the, the mission that the African-American Research Library and Cultural Center was established to fulfill. Well, Tamika, it's been a real pleasure to get to hear about the program and the, all the work, good work that you're doing, all the good trouble you're starting. Thank you. I, and again, I want to let people know that registration is still available. Uh, we There are plenty of seats available in all of the locations that we mentioned, but please visit blackhistoryproject.org to sign up um, for your students. Thank you, Tamika. Thank you. Our guest today was Dr. Tamika Hobbs. She manages the African-American Research Library and Cultural Center in Sistrunk in Fort Lauderdale. They partnered with the Black History Project to start a Black History Saturday School in Broward County. And that's Sundown for Monday, October 23rd. Leslie Obay Atkinson is our lead producer. Elisa Baena is our producer and social media editor. Sergio Bustos is WLRN's VP of News. And Katie Munoz is our director of live programming. Peter J. Meritz is WLRN's VP of Radio. Engineering our board is Richard Ives. Our theme music is by the Miami Afro-Cuban funk band Balo at GoBalo.com. Coming up tomorrow on the program, we hear from Miami-Dade County's poetry ambassador. Nicole Tallman tells us why South Florida is a great place to be a poet. I'm Carlos Frias. Good vibes only. WLRN Public Media.